1: We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show, and if we choose yours, you'll get free single tracks merch in the mail. This week, we're sharing a recent review from Zing309. Zing309 writes, Solid show! Jeff drills down on the finer points of specific MTV topics while actually listening to his guests and guides the interviews accordingly. Really informative and entertaining show. Dig it! If this was your review... Send us an email at info at and we'll get your shipping information. Be sure to add your review of the Singletracks podcast wherever you listen to our show. Thanks and happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Chris Sugai. So Chris is the co-founder and president of Niner Bikes, a brand which was an early adopter of the now ubiquitous mountain bike wheel size. Over the years, Chris and Niner have worked with incredible athletes, produced countless innovations, and they're supporters of the International Mountain Bike Association. Thanks for joining us, Chris.
0: Jeff, thanks. I'm happy to be on your podcast.
1: So you started Niner in 2004. What were you doing before that, before you were sort of in the bike industry?
0: Sure. Um, we officially started in 2005, but, but yeah, before I got into the bike industry, I I took the standard path of, you know, I owned a window tuning company.
1: (laughs) Pretty standard.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I started that company when I was 19 and I was still going to college and, uh, ran that company for, you know, over 25 years.
1: How do you start a window tinting company? Like, were you doing it yourself initially, like installing stuff or, or how did that even work?
0: Yeah. You know, when I was in the high school, I was really into cars and, uh, met a guy that was a window tinter and, uh, I learned from him and then, uh, started tinting cars and, uh, and just opened up a small garage and, um, started tinting cars. And then we grew that to be one of the you know, one of the largest in Los Angeles. Wow. And then uh, moved into homes and commercial buildings huh. about, after about 10 years of doing it that way. And then was able to grow the business to about the fifth largest in the United States.
1: Oh, wow. Incredible. Well, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of success with that business, but tell us like, what was the, the light bulb moment for you where you said, you know what? I should start a bike company.
0: So after about 20, it was right about 25 year mark. I was like, well, wow, I've been doing this for 25 years. And uh, I love reading business books and just studying business. And um, I read a passage, do something you love, never work a day in your life. And mm-hmm. uh, I started really germinating on that idea. And, and uh, I told my wife, you know, I'm going to look at try to find another business. And it was, quote, unquote, going to be a side business <laughs> to my window-tending business because I wasn't working full-time at that point. And um, so, you know, the three things you don't have to pay me to do on a Saturday is watch Formula One, play poker or ride my mountain bike. So (laughs) I literally spent, you know, a year, all of 2004 looking for business to get into in one of those three passions. And, uh, I, at the time I was heavily into, into single speed riding and I was, you know, you ride with a group of people and sort of a pecking order of, you know, Dan's the first one up and, 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 you know, Ryan's the first guy down and, and you sort of have a pecking order with a group, we have a group about 25, of 25 people we r- I rode with on a regular basis for almost 15 mm-hmm. years. Anyways, got a 29er and I just started whooping everybody uphill, really? downhill. And I was on a rigid, you know, with V brakes back then. That was, and everybody else had, you know, kind of enduro bikes at the time. Yeah. And this is back in 2004. So, you know, it's pretty laughable technology when you look at it now. Um, but, you know, but I was like, wow, this is, this thing's got, this thing's got, um, this is an amazing bike. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, Fortuitously, a friend of mine had just been laid off from, and he was a frame designer. So I said, "Oh, you know, hey, would you be interested in you know helping me design some 29er frames?" And, and uh, that's how Niner got started. I, you know, took some money that I had and started the company, and sort of ran out of the side of my other company, and and it, it just started growing organically from there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, did you find sort of what you expected? I mean. I imagine even though it is, you're you're running mountain bike company and that's cool and that's fun. Like there's gotta be challenges to that as well. Like, was it a big difference for you? Like running this type of business versus running a window tinting business?
0: Yeah. The window tinting business was more sort of like the construction field, which is, is different from the bike industry. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, you know, definitely a, a quick lesson in learning and drinking from a fire hose, and and you know making a lot of some mistakes along the way. You know, I think in business, just in general, there's a lot of overlap when it comes to cash flow management and branding and advertising mm-hmm. and so forth, admin kind of stuff that carries over. So you know, those mistakes, thank goodness, I'd already made in my other 20 years of running the window tending company, so I didn't make mm-hmm. as many of those mistakes going forward. Um, but, you know, learning the bike industry was a, was a steep learning curve. And one thing I really enjoyed about the bike industry is just the people. It just, you know, I think people that get into the outside industry have a passion for the outdoors mm-hmm. where people that are in the construction industry don't necessarily find it as something they want to do on the weekends. It's just something right. they fall into or, or they like building. Like I like doing things with my hands, but I did find it a much more passion oriented business. And, and just everybody I met was just all about cycling, climbing, kayaking. Um, so that was really enjoyable because I, you know, I'm an outdoor person. I really enjoy the outdoors.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Cool to see blending those passions together. Well, you mentioned that uh, you started out with a single speed, a rigid 29er. And it seems like at the time, around 2004, 2005, that's, that was pretty much like the main application for the the big wheels. Why at that time was that seen as such a natural application for big wheels? Like were people thinking about this as... Something for full suspension bikes or different types of bikes?
0: No, we you know, when I first started, you know, 29er single speeds were the hot thing. And we didn't have forks, well, for because no one wanted to make a fork. Um <laughs> oh, right. Marzuki was the only fork at the time. And it was a okay fork, but it, you know, had some issues. But, you know, Fox and, and at that time RockShock, you know, um, weren't interested in, in building a fork. I remember begging. Mm-hmm and I won't say which one, but, you know, please make a fork. And they were just like, we don't see a market for that. Yeah. And, um, uh, I almost went ahead and built my own suspension fork only because we couldn't get a, a proper fork out into the market. But at that time, you know, I think single speeding, it, it worked for us. It got us started. We started selling bikes to a real core group of riders and we had a really fun team that, um, just rode single speed and, and, uh, And for a while, you would hear sort of this grumbling among the industry of like, well, you know, 29ers are just for single speeds and Mm -hmm. that's all they're good for. But not real for for geared bikes or real mountain bikes. Um, But then, you know, a few years later, we developed our own suspension system, CVA, which is the first 29er only suspension system patented. And, um, you know, we changed some minds with that bike.
1: Yeah, for sure. Did you have a sense then that there was a bigger sort of market? I mean, like the really early days where pretty much everything was single speed and you're having a hard time getting a fork, you know, did, did it seem like 29 or single speed, like those two things go together?
0: You know, I just have a a love for single speeding. It's, it's a pure form of riding and that it really is like the your old BMX days. And and I grew (laughs) up, I started racing BMX when I was like seven till I was about 16 years old. And, and, uh, it just makes you feel like a kid on a bike and, and there's something pure about the experience and that it's just you and the bike, you're not shifting, you're not thinking. And, and if you've never tried single speeding, it, it you would think it's not a big deal, but just, just not having to think about shifting is, is uh, it is a, a change of experience when you're riding. But anyways, yeah. but it allows you to really feel the bike. You, you really feel about it. momentum is a big deal, keeping your moment, momentum up and carving and all that kind of stuff. And, and you can really tell just minute changes in the bike handling I was a super bike was a super bike geek. I'm still a super bike geek, uh, yeah. but I had I literally had like 10 bikes, you know, in my garage at any given time that I was cycling through, trying out different designs. And I was heavily into steel and and uh, aluminum, and, and uh, carbon fiber was fairly new back then. So
1: yeah, well, yeah, I mean, so I guess this kind of answers my next question. You know, it seems like. Nowadays, everybody has a, a 29er downhill bike, which seemed crazy, if not impossible, even just like four or five years ago. So it sounds like maybe, you know, Niner and, and you have stayed away from that end of the spectrum because that's not necessarily like the type of riding that, that you're interested in or, or what, what's kind of kept Niner out of that end of 29ers?
0: You know, it was more, you know, as far as the racing aspect of 29, of, of racing downhill and, and promoting a team, it's just, it's a very expensive sport to participate in. And, yeah. and it was one, you know, I think maybe because I'm i more of your rider's rider, average rider guy, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of focused on that. So trail riding and, and like park riding are, are more things that I enjoy doing. I had deep respect for the guys that ride downhill, but at the time that wasn't our focus. And we were, we were struggling, trust me, we were struggling enough just to sell across country yeah. 29er let alone a downhill bike so uh but you know in 2013 we actually you know debuted a concept a downhill 29er bike at interbike uh, which got zero press and zero play um <laughs> and uh, now what i was trying to do was attract a fork maker to make a fork for for this bike that we actually had in design yeah. um but we couldn't get a manufacturer that would be willing to to take a risk on that
1: mm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Niner also released a 29 plus bike, the ROS back in 2014. So what, if anything, did you learn about the market or rather, I guess, the limits of mountain bike wheel sizing? I mean, it seems like 29 is, you know, is bigger than what was available at the time. And it seems like maybe that's kind of the limit, right? Like people aren't looking for bigger wheels than that. Or what, what did you kind of take away from that?
0: You know, the 29 plus experiment with the Ross nine plus was a good one you know arizona is a very popular riding area destination for that type of bike you know i think when something new comes out and people tend to splinter and try to find all different niches to explore um with something new and in 29 plus is just one of those niches it you know is it for everybody no but for a group of segment of people it it is a good there's some validity there i don't think you could build a bike company around it but
1: (laughs) right yeah so in the beginning there was a lot of debate over wheel sizes and you know, we've seen a lot of new options like 27 five hit the mainstream since Niner began 15 years ago. So what's your take now? Like how important is wheel size to bike design overall?
0: You know, I think wheel size just comes into play when you're trying to talk about like, what are you going to ride? Like, like when we're designing a bike that we come up with a sheet and just say like, who are we designing this bike for? Mm-hmm. one right so is it going to be for bike packing? is it going to be for enduro riding is it going to be for cross-country racing and then then you kind of look at the wheel size and and, and geometry and should I have front suspension rear suspension how much and reach and then all those type of things so mm-hmm. wheel size is just part of the conversation I, I i liken a bike to baking a cake you know it's flour sugar eggs milk and mm-hmm. it, it's a but it's a combination of those ingredients that makes or breaks a recipe and you know with a bicycle you know the wheel size is just one ingredient it's not the it's not the sole ingredient and it doesn't really have to be the most important ingredient it depends on what you're doing obviously you know. Racing on a 26-inch wheel bike and cross-country racing is going to put you at a huge disadvantage. But, you know, maybe there's an application there. But at the end of the day, I think what's important when you're designing a bike is to take the wheel size into account and then build the bike around that wheel size. And we found trying to build a bike that accommodates two different wheel sizes there's too many adjustments, you end up just getting a pretty – a lot of – you end up making too many compromises in your design.
1: Hmm. When you first started out though, was was wheel size more important in your mind then? Like if you kind of evolved on that in terms of like how important that is to the bike?
0: You know, I think the twenty-seven and a half movement definitely, you know, I had to eat some crow on that um during that period of time. And and um, you know, we have a twenty seven and a half inch bike and, and I, I rode one for a year solid and it's a very playful bike, changes directions really fast. And so yeah. I, I totally get the fun aspect and and then there's other areas where, you know, super tricky areas. Sometimes a 29er would be a lot more comfortable or more reassuring to ride that ride through that. Um, and then when you're, if you're racing, you know, and, and you're racing at stopwatch, you know, 29ers almost always going to be faster.
1: Um, well, I was just going to say, I, I don't necessarily think that that Niner would need to eat any crow. I mean, it's like you guys were right, you know, like 27.5 kind of came and, It bursts on the scene, but like, we're seeing a shift back the other way. And it seems like, like that was really in the beginning to, to base a whole company or at least your brand identity around this like wheel size, I think was, it was a bold move to say the least.
0: Yeah, it definitely was in the beginning. And and a lot of people were skeptical that that was a concept that would make sense (laughs) in the long term. So, um, but you know, when it comes to wheel size now with Niter, you know, we're very agnostic about wheel sizes and, and, um. I think at the end of the day, we're committed to doing bikes for dirt and we want to make bikes that people love to ride that are fun and, and uh, you know, bring something new to the table.
1: Yeah. Well, as a company, Niner has evolved a whole lot over the, the years that you've been around. So today, though, the brand is owned by a larger parent company. So how has that changed things, if at all?
0: Overall, it's been a very positive experience. You know, our, our new parent company, you know, has made a large investment into Niner uh, itself. We've doubled our R&D staff uh, since two years ago. Um, wow. We've opened a new warehouse in the EU and we have a, a sales staff and management and marketing going on over there. And uh, that's a new important market for us to bridge. And, um, you know, here in the United States, we're very focused on the IBD market and uh, domestic market specifically. And um, being part of a large cycling group, the our parent company owns a number of cycling companies. We, you know, but being a a large company, we just have a lot of internal resources. Like, you know, we never had an in-house attorney or uh, Mm -hmm. an IT team or uh, operations logistics kind of people we we can lean on to get best practices from. So all those things I think are making Niner uh, a better company going forward.
1: Yeah. Is it, does it ever though feel like constraining to you? I mean, obviously you're very entrepreneurial. You, you're used to like running the show. Is there like a downside to it at all?
0: You know, so, so a sole proprietor and small business owner, you know, pretty much my entire life since I was, you know, 19, my job before I, had, before I started the women's company, I worked at McDonald's. So, uh, you know, so it's been, you know, it's been a learning experience having a parent company, but, you know, I had investors in Niner that I had to answer to and, and banks right. and so forth. So, you know, I still have this fiduciary duty to, to um, deliver certain deliverables to the parent company and, and, mm-hmm. and do my job. So with that being said, you know, I don't. I don't really feel that the change has been that great. And it's been, it's been a transition that I've been able to bridge.
1: Yeah. Cool. So I'm interested to know what it takes to build a really successful culture and a following specifically for a mountain bike brand. I imagine it's very different from a window tinting business. I mean, I imagine part of the window tinting is there's like a cool factor to it, but, but not like bikes, right? Where it's like this is something people do for fun and for recreation and like to say something about themselves. So how did you approach that? And how have you been able to be so successful at it?
0: Oh, well, thank you. First, you know, at the end of the day, it is easier to build a culture around a passion type of industry like mountain biking in that, you Mm -hmm. know, one thing we do is, you know, we're, we're very sticklers about how we hire people. Like we want to hire cyclists. Now you don't have to be crazy you know adventure cyclists you just have to have a load for bicycles whatever it may be but in the end of the day i think when you're trying to build a culture and a brand it's it's being authentic and i know people use that word all the time but you know what really means when you say being authentic is you got to be focused on your core beliefs and for niner it's you know make cool bikes that work have a great customer service and give back and uh, those are our three tenets that we've always stood by since we started and um I think as long as you you keep marching to those core tenets, um, you you'll build a strong culture over time. It just takes time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you make it sound really simple, and and in a lot of ways, I guess it is, right? I mean, you start with the right people who are passionate, and they're going to produce things that that they cool that they think are cool, or things that they would enjoy, and and the market can can kind of understand that.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's also about nurturing your people. You have to building a culture, it's a company is, is nothing but its people. And, uh, so unless you bring in good people and then you help them flourish, your culture is going to die.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the cool things I remember, uh, hearing about when I visited Niner a few years ago was, I guess there was some kind of like regular bike ride that employees would do, uh, where they would like ride out to the river or something and like make coffee, and like drink coffee before work and then like ride back into the office. And yeah, I just saw like, man, that's, that's so cool. Like there's not a lot of people do stuff like that. And it just shows that, you know, people, a they want to hang out with each other, like outside of work and b yeah, they're authentic. They're, they're living their passions.
0: Yeah. It's doing, it's doing some fun stuff. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago it was Chinese New Year. So we uh, set up a teeter totter and some uh, skinnies out in the parking lot and, beer and pizza and had everybody ride some new bikes that we're working on and get everybody immersed in the new product. And, uh, yeah, I think it's just taking some time out and not taking yourself too seriously. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are selling fun. You know what I mean? We're making stuff that people, people really enjoy. That's our, that's why we do what we do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So Niner has also been really innovative in the gravel space lately, which seems to be like a really hot thing right now. So what's your vision for where gravel riding and gravel bikes fit into the cycling landscape?
0: You know, I see the same pattern that, as we talked about earlier, like when 29er wheel size first came out, you know, people were, it seemed like every, I mean, literally like every three months a new wheel size was being introduced (laughs) or a width or something. And, uh, you know, I see the same pattern falling, falling again on the gravel scene that, you know, you're going to see a lot of niche segments for a while and, and certain brands focusing on certain niches, which is which is fine. And that seems to be the trend. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think we get a lot of flack of like, you know, you don't need a gravel bike to ride gravel. That's <laughs> very true. But I do feel that, you know, cyclists as a group and are very, a very passionate breed of people. And for those of us who call ourselves cyclists and identify as a cyclist, you know, we don't take this as a casual hobby. And so our mm-hmm. equipment, we just don't take like, Oh, I'll just use that bike and, right. and it's good. Um, they want, you know, they're, they're spending a lot of time and a lot of energy, um, devoting themselves to this lifestyle and they want their, they want their equipment to resonate, um, with that. So. I understand why people want that type of optimal equipment for whatever they may be doing, whether it be racing, bikepacking, or just, you know, out enjoying uh, terrain.
1: That almost sounds like an argument somebody who's, like, not into cycling at all would make, right? But but you, you're you right. We hear that from people who are already mountain bikers, that are already road cyclists, and they look at gravel and say, like, why would I need a special bike for that? But but yeah, if your neighbor said the same thing to you about your your mountain bike, <laughs> you'd probably say, "Well, duh."
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things. I think once you start going out and actually riding on gravel and, and realizing the different needs, um, and once you ride a proper gravel bike and you get off your cyclocross bike, whatever else you were riding, you'll mm-hmm. go, "Okay, I'm going to see if I can get one of those."
1: <laughs> yeah, and Niners really been pushing the envelope with the mcr which is is it the the first and the still maybe the only full suspension gravel bike
0: i mean the only yeah we are the first and you know only uh, there's another one out there that has sort of a a flexible pivot and we're kind of seeing you know we decided a long ago you know we got into the gravel scene really early back in 2013 Mm -hmm. and uh you know so we've watched this segment grow and uh, quite a few of us in the office myself included really enjoy riding gravel and Mm -hmm. um see where it can go and you you end up pushing the limits and like we talked about finding niches and you know there's a lot of great single track out there that a lot of you know riding it on a on a gravel bike is all of a sudden a whole new experience because it's a little more challenging than it was on your Mm -hmm. you know 100 mil 120 mil travel um trail bike so uh um, but we're seeing the same thing I saw with 29ers. You know, everybody's like, oh, it's too big. And and so they want this tweener size. And I got a lot of flack for calling it a tweener size, but whatever. Uh, but, you know, you, you can you, call it
1: whatever you, you want. You
0: see it happen all the time in technology when something new that's really out there. Everybody wants to kind of find this halfway point because it's just a little bit more. It's a stepping stone to get there. But, you know, again, we just decided we're not going to we're not going to take this bridge one step at a time. We're just going to go for it in, you know, a full suspension gravel bike. You know, really has has a place for certain types of riding. We're not advocating yeah. for everybody, but if you if you, I lived in an area where it was where it was really chunky gravel, and you know you would get vibrated to death, and so having a having suspension there is really nice, and and also for uh, maybe for riders that are coming off the road onto the gravel, you know, they're not used to having their bike, their wheels skid around and, and not having good traction. And it's a little unnerving for a new rider. And, and you know, the gravel bike gives you this really sure-footed feel um, because the wheel is actually tracking the ground properly. And, you're, and you and you do have better traction going along. And um, it's tunable. So you ride a weight, you know, you can get it right to where you want. And, um, you know, we're seeing other brands come out with flexible handlebars and stems and flexible seat posts, which, you know, we had back in the 90s. Um, Anybody that's been in the industry for a long period of time and, you know, those, you know, they're still there. There's there's a place for those things, but I I do feel for performance type of gravel riding, I still feel that, you know, for full suspension is the way to go for if you want suspension for your bike. If you don't, we have you know, there's other gravel bikes out there that are rigid. And, and if you really need it, we have, there's these things called mountain bikes.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's sort of been my experience. I have done a little bit of gravel riding and, you know, being more used to riding a mountain bike, you know, whenever I get on one, one, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's fun and it's different, but then, I you know, after a while I'm like, Oh, you know, it'd be great. would be like a dropper post on this. And, and so, yeah, you do think about those things and about like, well, like what could I add without, you know, taking away some of the advantages because a gravel bike has advantages in terms of like the gearing and, you know, you're not going to have as much rolling resistance with the wheels and the tires and, you know, it's a lighter bike. And so you can, you know, go farther and, and not get as tired. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting place where we are right now, where we're trying to figure out, like, what are the features that we want? What are the ones that we don't want? And it seems like, yeah, again, you know, Niners kind of at the forefront, like, trying to figure that out, which is cool to see. Thank you. So, you yeah, you also mentioned, too, you know, this desire to build a gravel bike, you know, kind of germinating in 2013. How much of that would you say is based on, like, where Niner is located. I mean, in Fort Collins, seems like, you know, that played a role in it because there are these like gravel roads out on sort of the east side of town where you can go out and, and just ride and ride versus like, you know, if you, your company was based somewhere else, do you think that gravel would have been like the obvious thing to do for you?
0: Well, Fort Collins, we're blessed in that, you know, we're 15 minutes from the Rocky Mountains. So there's Plenty of mountain bike trails to ride. And, and then we also put a little plug for the town of Fort Collins. I mean, we just have this amazing single track and um, bike network throughout the entire mm-hmm. city. And so there's a lot of places where you can ride on designated paved trails to get to your work from home. Mm-hmm. And there and there's all these little single track offshoots that people have sort of built over time. And so, you know, having a gravel bike, you can take four or five different routes on your way to work. It's, it's pretty yeah. cool.
1: Yeah. So it's multi-surface. And again, yeah, that before that term was, was being used. I mean, people thought like, okay, if you're to ride on the road, you need a road bike. If you're riding on trails, you want a mountain bike, but yeah. What happens when you want to, you want to do both in the same ride?
0: Yeah. And you want to cut in a little bit of single track where you're at it. So, yeah. but it, you know, we were fortunate at Fort Collins to sort of have a nice mix of cycling culture here. And, mm-hmm. um, so we have again, gravel roads, we have there's pump tracks not too far away. We have, and then we have, you know, mountain bike trails. So, and then we obviously have all the ski lifts, uh, during the summertime.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really great mix. Well, these days consumers assume they can purchase pretty much anything online. I mean, all of us, I'm sure get multiple deliveries a week from amazon.com and places like that. So what are your thoughts about online and direct bike sales? Do you think that's, that's a viable thing or is the dealer model like important to selling, especially high quality bikes?
0: I still really believe that the local bike shop isn't going anywhere. And, um, there is a place for, you know, direct, direct to consumer bike brands are out there, but you know, you can look at the landscape of retail products and let's take like Warby Parker, which makes eyeglasses and, you know, they were the thing and everybody was talking about it for a long time. And, and their sales slow down and what are they doing? They're open ups, you know, they're in every mall. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're backtracking and you look at Casper beds and, you know, there's a, you can go on and on about brands that all germinated online and are all trying to find a presence in real time. Because mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, you know, people still want to try before they buy. And I think that that the local bike shop still plays a critical role in that now. You know, over time, does the local bike shop have to be on an expensive Main Street location? I think they can probably move back to, you know, less expensive digs and, and still serve their purpose. I think that might be something, a trend you see going forward. But I don't think local bike shops are going to go away because I think people need to have their bikes repaired. They want to talk to an expert about upgrading their bikes. They want to talk about someone who's knowledgeable before they make such a large purchase. And they want a chance to try these bikes out before they actually buy them. And, and, and a local bike shop is really the best way to do that.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned those sort of online brands that are creating these offline opportunities and experiences. Um, I I mean, I wonder how much of that is like kind of the, the cool factor or like, you know, the, just putting their brand out there where people can see it and like gives it more legitimacy, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't have the exact answer for that, but seeing that they're popping up in retail locations that were, these were online brand only it tells me that they wouldn't be doing it unless, unless they had to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And with bikes, like you said, there are a lot of reasons. It's not just so that people can learn about the brand. It's, it's so they can get the, the items serviced and they can, you know, test it out. And there's all those things that, especially with bikes where, you know, people are going to want to do those things. Mm-hmm. So what's been the biggest challenge for you to running a successful bike company? I
0: think the most challenging thing is the, you know, at the end of the day, there's lead times for us. You know, I think, I think the general public thinks that we, we, we decide to make a bike and, you know, three months later it's, it's out on the showroom floor <laughs> But You know, yeah. there really is this process of 18 to 24 months from the time, you know, you think about making a bike till it actually can reach a, a showroom floor of a dealer. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so with that, you know, we have to have the ability to basically determine what the bike tastes are gonna be like two or three years from now. So we're not really designing bikes. The bikes that we have on the design table now are bikes that we aren't gonna launch until, you know, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. So we're wow. thinking that far out and trying to decide, you know, where is the market moving? And uh that's that's not always easy to do. Sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it seems like too, with, you know, these days, a lot of people work in like the knowledge economy where they're, you know, creating software or like for us, you know, we're writing stories online and, you know, there it's, it's a lot different when you're making a physical item and it's not just, uh, you know, well, let's just throw it together and, and, you know, we'll tweak it if we need to later. I mean, you, you have to make decisions that, you know, are not, are not easy to like undo or like, you know, if you put something in the wrong place and on a bike, then that's, that could be a big problem, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's, and trends change and, you know, these are not small investments we're making. And when you come up with a new type of bike or a new bike line or a new suspension system, you know, there's a lot of money that goes into that development um, timeline and, and resources of just people's times, you know, we value our engineers times very, very carefully.
1: Yeah. Well, has anything surprised you, you know, in the years of running Niner or, or even recently, are there recent trends that are kind of surprising to you?
0: I'm quietly, um, champion, you know, linkage forks. I've been a big fan of linkage forks. Mm-hmm. My, I wrote a Gervin linkage fork way back in the day and, and, uh, I, I thought there were a lot of great attributes about it that would transfer yeah. over nicely to, to, uh, bicycling. And, um, it's nice to see some of those forks and, you know, I understand people, the aesthetics, they have a challenge with, they have a challenge <laughs> yeah. getting used to something new. Uh, but 29ers were aesthetic challenge when they first started. And, um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, could, uh, nice to see that that's actually seeing some, some light of day. I appreciate uh, Good to see that.
1: Yeah. So Niner has always been a huge supporter of the international mountain bike association. Why is that support such a big priority for the brand?
0: You know, as a, we went back to sort of, you know, <clears throat> the three pillars about Niner and it just give back. And um, I, I just, it's just been a philosophy I've I've had my whole life of, you know, you can't just take, you have to give, you can't just yeah. take from this world. And you, if you have to give back and we contribute, you know, fruits of your labor. And, um, and I was a supporter of Imba, you know, before I started, um, Niner, I remember, you know, going to BLM meetings when I was in college and, Mm. and it would be 15 equestrians and us two mountain bikers, you know, trying to get this trail stay open. And, um, and they've come a long way and i really applaud the efforts that Imba has made. And, um, and I know, you know, there's some people don't always agree with Imba's strategy, but I think at the end of the day, when you measure what they've done over time, it has been nothing but success. And, um, you know, I think it's important for people to to if you're if you're out there enjoying trails, if you work for a bicycle company that you know is off-road focused, you know, you need to support some type of advocacy group because other groups want still don't want us out there. And um and it's just like you listen to NPR or you listen to podcasts, you know, there's there's you know you gotta support pit um, you know, Patreon and and those other groups you can't just listen for free
1: <laughs> right yeah that's a good point right i mean like you you said there over the years there have been people who disagree with what imba does and you know my response is usually well like who are you supporting then i mean you know it's not enough to just say like i i don't like what this one group is doing so i'm not going to support anybody yeah and, and they seem to be the, the best ones that are out there. They have been our
0: champion for decades. And um, I just think it's important for people not to focus on one or two things that, and they may disagree with us. You gotta look at what their organization does in, in its totality and the amount of time and work people have put in without really getting a pat on the back for what they deserve.
1: Yeah, well, where do you see opportunities for growth and innovation in the mountain bike industry over the next five to 10 years?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know i think i think the you know park riding is still going to continue to grow because i can't imagine that ski resorts are have their mountains fallow during the summertime <laughs> when they could have them full with mountain bikers if they were yeah. if they were if they're careful about it and, and uh, do it carefully obviously i think you know e-bikes are coming to coming to the united states you see the growth in europe and um you see that it brings new riders into the scene and um Allows for larger exploration, so I think all those things are great for the industry and for 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 cycling in general. And and I also think you know material advancements are, are you know they're always they're always out there, and there's there's always new things that are going to be coming out, making things lighter, stronger.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, your parent company also has a material for creating bike frames. Uh, is that something that Niner is looking at using, or is that going to be sort of separate?
0: So, yeah, the company is called All light, and they have i p around uh, new magnesium types of technology and magnesium has mm-hmm. been around for a while, and it's had its f- fits and starts in the cycling industry, I think realizing that you know almost all your front fork lowers are made of magnesium, so you've got magnesium on your bike you just don't right. really didn't realize um, <laughs> but this new type of magnesium has some really interesting properties, and uh, so yes, they are all light is going to be coming out with its own brand of of bicycles um, called VAST. And uh, um, they launched actually formally at uh, Eurobike last year. And the first bikes are starting to trickle out into the public now as we speak. We'll see some of that technology trickle into Niner as well over time.
1: Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us and to fill us in on Niner, but also the industry as a whole and some of the trends uh, that you're seeing out there and that will, you know, one day will affect all of us. So thank you.
0: You're welcome, Jeff. It's a pleasure talking to you and getting to speak to your audience.
1: Well, you can find out more about Niner ninerbikes.com. And also be sure to follow Tracks, where we'll post the latest news uh, from the company as well. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.